Chapter Eight of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight. Some remarkable evidence. Three days went by, days full of wonder and anxiety. Many were the discussions between Patterson, Dick, and myself regarding the extraordinary development of the mystery which had now resolved itself into as complete a puzzle as ever occupied the attention of Scotland Yard. In Ebury Street and at Hampton most careful observation was being carried out on night and day, but according to Boyd absolutely nothing suspicious could be discovered. Lady Glaslyn was, according to Durbrett, widow of a Sir Henry Glaslyn, a Scotch baronet who had died several years before, leaving no heir to continue the title, and only one daughter, Ava. In the meantime the bodies of the man and the woman had been removed to the mortuary secretly in the early hours of the morning, in order not to arouse the suspicion of the neighbors, and a post-mortem had been held by two local doctors, with the result that it was found possible to hold the inquest on the afternoon of the third day. The coroner held his inquiry in a small back room in the Kensington Town Hall, not far from the scene of the tragedy, and in opening made a short address to the jury, pointing out the necessity for preserving the utmost secrecy in the matter, and expressing a hope that no one present would defeat the ends of justice by giving any facts to the newspapers. "'Pardon me, sir,' exclaimed the tradesman who had been elected foreman, "'but I see two gentlemen of the press present.' "'Both have assisted us in our inquiries,' Patterson briefly explained to the coroner. "'Of course,' the coroner answered, "'this is a public court.' and therefore we cannot exclude any one. Yet I am confident the reporters will respect my wishes. This we both promised to do, Clue, well known to the coroner, speaking first. The coroner, when the jury had returned from viewing the bodies, made a few further observations, pointing out to the jury that although the affair was one of the most mysterious and inexplicable that had ever come beneath his notice in the course of his twenty years' experience as a London coroner, yet they were there to try and decide the cause of death alone. They had no concern with any other facts except the cause of death, and he trusted they would give the matter their undivided attention. Patterson was the first witness. In terse language he gave an account of his discovery and of his second visit to the house in my company. Then, when he had concluded, I was called and bore out his statement, relating how we had entered the laboratory and found the marvellous scientific apparatus, and how in the pocket of the dead man I had found a penny wrapped in paper. The cards with the strange devices which had been beneath the plates on the dining-table were handed round to the jury for their inspection, and that a statement which I made startled even the coroner. It was how the body of the woman at present in the mortuary was not the same as the one we had at first discovered. "'Impossible!' exclaimed the coroner while the twelve jurymen stood aghast at my statement. "'That is quite true, sir,' exclaimed Patterson, rising from his seat. "'The lady we first discovered was younger, with fair hair.' "'Then there must have been a triple tragedy,' observed the coroner, astounded. "'This is most extraordinary.' I was about to explain how I had recognized in the girl I met in St. James's Park the identical woman whom we had discovered lifeless, but a sharp look from the inspector silenced me. We are making diligent inquiries, the officer went on, and we have reason to believe that we shall be able to make a further statement later, at the adjourned inquiry. 
The coroner nodded, and, turning to the jury, said, "'Of course, gentlemen, it would not be wise at this stage for the police to disclose any of the information in their possession. Their success in such matters as this mainly depends upon secrecy. I think we may now, perhaps, hear the medical evidence.' The jury stirred uneasily and settled themselves to listen intently, as Dr. Lees Knowles, the police divisional surgeon, stepped forward and was sworn. I was called by the police to the house, he said, and found there were two deceased persons, a man and a woman in the drawing-room on the first floor. The attire of the man was rather disarranged, as the police had already searched him, but there were no signs whatever of a struggle. "'You made a cursory examination, of course,' suggested the coroner. "'Yes, life had been extinct some time, and rigor mortis had commenced. There was, however, no external sign of foul play.' and the post-mortem. The court was silent in anxious anticipation of the doctor's response. Assisted by Dr. Linz, I made a post-mortem, but found absolutely nothing to account for death. There was no mark of violence on either of the bodies, and no physical defect or slightest trace of disease. Nevertheless, the position of the bodies when found makes it evident that both persons died with great suddenness and without being able to obtain assistance. "'Was there nothing whatever to give any clue to the cause of death?' asked the coroner, himself a medical man. "'Nothing,' responded the surgeon. "'One thing, however, struck us as peculiar. On the inside of the right forearm of both the man and the woman were identical tattoo marks. The device, nearly an inch in diameter, represented a serpent with its tail in its mouth, the ancient emblem of eternity. The mark on the man had evidently been traced several years ago but that on the woman is comparatively fresh, and could not have been completely healed over more than a month ago. It is as though the mark on the man has been copied upon the woman. "'And what do you think is the signification of this mark?' inquired the coroner, looking up from the blue fool's cap whereon he had been writing down the depositions. "'I'm utterly at a loss to know,' the doctor answered. "'Yet it is very curious that upon one of these cards we found beneath the plates there is a circle drawn.' while it also seemed that snakes were kept in the house as pets. To my mind, all three circumstances have some connecting significance. The jury bent together and conversed in whispers. This theory of the doctor's seemed to possess a good deal of truth, even though the mystery was increased rather than diminished. Many more questions were put to the doctor, after which his colleague, Dr. Linz, was called and corroborated the police surgeon's evidence. He, too, was utterly unable to ascribe any fatal cause. The tattoo marks had puzzled him, but he suggested that the man and woman might be husband and wife, and that in a freak of caprice to which women of some temperaments are subject, she had caused a device on her husband's arm to be copied upon her own. Opinions were, however, divided as to whether the pair were husband and wife. For my own part, I did not regard his theory as a sound one. "'You did not overlook the contents of the stomach, of course?' the coroner exclaimed. "'No, we sent them in sealed bottles to Dr. Marston, the analyst of the home office.' "'And have we his report?' inquired the coroner. "'Dr. Marston is here himself, sir. He has come to give evidence,' Patterson answered from the back of the room, while at the same time an old grey-haired gentleman in gold-rimmed spectacles rose, and walking forward took the oath. "'You received from the previous witnesses two bottles?' suggested the coroner. "'Will you please tell us the result of your analysis?' 
"'I tested carefully with group regents for every known poison, and also for ptomaine,' he said. "'But all the solvents—alcohol, benzol, naphtha, ammonia, and so forth—failed. I tested for the alkaloids such as strychnine, lip, digitalin, and cantharidin, and used hydrochloric acid to find either silver, mercury, or lead, and also ammonia in an endeavor to trace tin, cadmium, or arsenic. To none of the known groups does the poison, if poison there be, belong. Therefore I have been utterly unable to arrive at any definite conclusion. Is there no direct trace of any poison? None, was the answer. Yet from the result of certain group regions it would appear that death was due to the virulence of some exotic substance. You cannot, we take it, decide what that substance was? Unfortunately, no, the renowned analyst answered, apparently annoyed at having to thus publicly acknowledge his failure. The state of the stomach of either person was not such as might cause death. Indeed, there was only a secondary and most faint trace of the unknown substance to which I have referred. Then, to put it quite plainly, said the coroner, it is your opinion that they were poisoned? I can scarcely go so far as that, the witness responded. All I can say in evidence is that I found a slight trace of some deleterious substance which all tests refused to clearly reveal. Whether it were an actual poison which resulted in death, I hesitate to say, as the result of my analysis is not sufficiently clear to warrant any direct allegation. Do you suggest that this substance, whatever it was, must have been baneful and injurious to the human system? I think so. Even that, however, is not absolutely certain. As you know, certain poisons in infinitesimal quantities are exceedingly beneficial. Then we must take it that, presuming these two persons actually died of poison, it must have been by a poison unknown in toxicology, observed the coroner. Exactly, the analyst responded, standing with his hands behind his back and peering through his spectacles at the expectant jury. The coroner invited the jury to ask any questions of the analyst, but the twelve Kensington tradesmen feared to put any query to the man who had the science of poisoning thus at his fingers' ends, and whose analysis were always thorough and absolutely beyond dispute. He was the greatest authority on poisons, and they could think of nothing further to ask him. Therefore the coroner politely invited him to sign his depositions. After he had withdrawn, the coroner, placing down his pen, sighed, leaned back in his chair with a puzzled expression, and once more addressed the twelve men who had been summoned and warned before him. They had heard the evidence, he said, and it was now for them to decide whether the two persons had died from natural causes or whether they had met with foul play. In the circumstances he acknowledged that a decision was extremely difficult on account of the many mysterious side issues connected with the affair yet he pointed out that if they were in real doubt whether to return a verdict of natural death or of willful murder, there was still a third course, namely to return an open verdict of found dead and thus leave the matter in the hands of the police. He was ready, of course, to adjourn the inquiry, but from what he knew of the matter, together with the evidence which had just been given, it was his honest opinion that no object could be obtained in an adjournment and further by closing the inquest at once they would prevent any inexpedient facts leaking out to the newspapers. The jury retired to consult in an adjoining room, and in ten minutes returned, giving an open verdict of found dead. Thus ended the inquiry, and while the law had been complied with, public curiosity remained unaroused, and the police were enabled to work on in secret. 
With Clue I lingered behind, chatting with Patterson and Boyd. "'We're keeping observation at Upper Phillimore Place,' Boyd explained, in response to my inquiry. "'Funny thing that nobody else calls there, and that the servants have never come back.' "'Have you found the snake that was in the garden?' Clue asked of Patterson, with a significant glance at me. "'No,' he responded, rather confused. "'You see, any search there might arouse suspicion. Therefore we are compelled to be content with watching for the return of any one to the house.' "'But you haven't yet succeeded in establishing the identity of the pair,' Dick observed. "'No, that's the queerest part of it,' Boyd exclaimed. "'The owner of the house, a builder who has an office in Church Street close by, says that the place was taken furnished by a Mrs. Blaine, who gave her address at Harwell, near Ditcott. She paid six months' rent in advance.' "'Harwell!' echoed Clue, turning to me. "'Isn't that your home, Irwin?' "'Yes,' I gasped. The name of Blaine caused me to stand immovable. "'Why,' Dick exclaimed, noticing my agitation, "'what's the matter, old fellow? Do you know the Blaines?' "'Yes,' I managed to reply. "'They must be the Blaines of Shenley Court. If so, they are friends of my family.' I had never told my companion of my bygone love affair, because it had been a thing of the past before we had gone into diggings together. "'Who are they?' inquired Boyd quickly. Tell me all you know concerning them, as we are about to prosecute inquiries in their direction. First tell me the statement of the house-owner, I said. Well, he describes Mrs. Blaine as a middle-aged, rather pleasant lady, who came to his office about a year ago in response to an advertisement in the Morning Post. She appeared most anxious to have the house, and one fact which appears to strike the old fellow as peculiar is that she took it and paid a ten-pound notice deposit without ever seeing the interior of the premises. She told him that it was for some friends of hers from abroad, and that they not having arrived she would sign the agreement and accept all responsibility. "'Anything else?' "'Yes,' the detective replied. She was accompanied by a young lady whom old Tritton, the landlord, took to be her daughter. Now tell me what you know.' I paused, looking at him fixedly. The disclosure that Mrs. Blaine was the actual holder of that house of mystery was certainly startling. It was remarkable, too, that on the very night of the crime I should receive a letter from Mary, the woman who had so long lingered in my memory. Was that, I wondered, anything more than a mere coincidence? "'I don't know that I can tell you very much about the family,' I answered, determined to put him off the scent and make inquiries myself. They were very much respected when at Shenley where they kept up a fine country house and entertained a great deal. They were parishioners of my father, therefore I went there very often. Do you know Mrs. Blaine well? Quite well. And her daughter, suggested Dick, much interested. What's she like? Pretty? Passable, I answered, with affected indifference. Then they are not a shady family at all, suggested the detective. Not in the least. That is why the fact of Mrs. Blaine having taken the house is so surprising. It may have been sublet, Clue observed. Her friends from abroad may not have arrived after all, and she might have relet it, a circumstance which seems most likely, as no one appears to have seen her enter the place. At any rate, it's most extraordinary, I said. Then, turning to Boyd, I asked, Why not leave the inquiry in that quarter to me? Knowing her, I can obtain information far more easily than you can. Yes, Clue urged. It would be a better course, much better. "'Very well,' answered the detective, not, however, without some hesitation. "'But be careful not to disclose too much. 
try and find out one fact only, the reason she took the house. Leave all the rest to us. I promised, and after drinking together over in the refreshment bar at High Street Station we parted, and Clue and I took a bus back to our chambers. He stopped at Holborn to buy some last editions of the papers, while I hurried on, for, being terribly hungry, I wished to give old Mrs. Joad early intimation of our readiness for the diurnal stake. With my latch-key I entered our chambers. The succulent scent of grilled meat greeted my nostrils, and I strode eagerly forward shouting for the hag. As I entered the sitting-room I started and drew back. A quick word of apology died from my lips, for out of our single armchair there arose a tall female dark, well-fitting dress, bowing with a grace that was charming. I saw before me, half-concealed beneath a thin black veil, a smiling face eminently pretty, a tiny mouth parted to show an even row of pearly teeth, a countenance that was handsome in every feature. That pair of eyes peering forth at me held me motionless, dumb. I stood before my visitor, confused and speechless. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.